Welcome to another edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, we are honored to continue our series, A Better Human Story, uh, with Dr. Andy Schmuckler. Today, we're going to discuss three important articles that he wrote, specifically The Right of Secession, A Better Human Story, that I'm going to want to explore. What was the Confederacy about? And the spirit that drove us to civil war is back. Dr. Schmuckler, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm fine. Dr. Schmuckler, (laughs) you wrote this piece called The Right of Secession. And I must admit that after reading it and after speaking to you for several weeks, my first thought was, huh? You you would have allowed the South to secede. No, well, that's... That's a weird place to start, but <laughs> I know it's you know, a weird my, place to my, start, but I I, I think the, it is. Well, I could have called the piece more the, accurately. I could have called it the question of the right of secession, because my right. point in the article was that the South clearly behaved illegally, that it was a crime against the constitutional system to secede. Whether or not they had the right of secession, they definitely didn't have the right to assert it on their own. So it's it's an example of the lawlessness at the center of the whole thing. They would not abide by their constitutional requirement because the president said they had no right. They said, yes, we do have a right. There is a way that we Americans had agreed with the Constitution to decide conflicts like that. And that's to take it to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme, if I had been on the Supreme Court, I might have said I would be willing to argue the possibility that the South did have the right to secede. Doctor, but but, uh, but, go ahead, but that's favor. not important. The important thing uh, is we see lawlessness at the center of the Confederacy. Great. Doctor, please come a little bit closer to the center of the screen, because right now you're kind of on the on, on the right side. So a little more close. I appreciate that. Oh, okay. A little bit more. Cent- a, a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, I'm center uh, little, left, aren't I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, let me let me let me first tell you uh, when when I started by saying it surprised me the intent of that statement wasn't to make the assumption that somehow you thought these guys were doing anything correctly I just thought again that that within the document in two or three places where you said you you may have allowed them to secede you know uh, based on how you think it it was just a bit Shocking to me. Let me just say, you know, what I say about myself with respect to that issue is that when the Slovaks and the Czechs, not very many years ago, decided to dissolve uh, the Czechoslovakia into two different countries, I felt supportive of of, of the Slovaks in their desire. I felt, okay, self-determination of people. It's a basic principle, one of Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Likewise, I have a lot of sympathy for the Scots who who um, want to be part of the EU and to dissolve their connection with the UK. So in principle, I think that maybe people do have the right through some kind of agreed procedure uh, to dissolve a nation. I'd be willing to hear that case. But my point is, and here's the important thing about this whole issue, is that when we look at 
what the South did in seceding, which was a criminal act, we can see the lawlessness that well, now we see from this, a force that looks very much like it in attempting a coup d'etat rather than accepting the outcome of an election. We can see lawlessness in the refusal to submit to legitimate authority over them when they lose. 1860 and 2020, two, two elections in which something that looks like the same force refuses to accept, oh, we lost this election. In the one case, a whole region of the country votes to, to secede and say, we are not going to live under the authority of this uh, president uh, who, who is on the, uh, our op, uh, who opposes us. And here in 2020, we refuse to accept the legitimacy of a, uh, of a president who beat our guy fair and square. We're going to pretend that he stole the election. It is looking at the same thing manifesting in somewhat different ways. And what I think is important to notice is you can have a coherent force that moves through the generations in a cultural system so that by the time I wrote that piece in 2014, the Republican Party looked a whole lot to me like the slave power that I had studied in some depths, uh, starting with teaching American history and then getting caught up into studying the 1850s. And I saw, geez, I, I use the image of um, uh, facial recognition technology. You know, the, 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 uh, the system, the observant system sees something in the airport or whatever, the same face, and it's able to recognize, and it says, this is the same guy in this place as as was in that place. And if you look at, it, at the way human cultures work and how the forces evolve, the force that drove us to civil war was very closely paralleling the nature of the forces of the Republican Party back in 2014 when I wrote this. Now, I will say that when Trump comes in, there's a different spirit. There, there are a lot of parallels, but it's not the same. Trump's spirit is not the same as the spirit of, uh, of the slave power. It's not Robert E. Lee and, and Alexander Stevens and those, you know, he, he's a thug of a very different kind. These were gentlemen who, whose power and wealth was based on enslaving other people. That's a kind of thuggishness, but it's not Trump's kind. Anyway, Trump has muddied the waters is what I'm trying to say. But back in 2014, we could see that there was a spirit that moved from 1850 through the Civil War, through the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, through the Jim Crow South, through Plessy versus Ferguson saying separate is equal, through all the lynchings. We can see that spirit moving through the culture, being transmitted from generation to generation as an undercurrent in the or, or an overcurrent, you know, fighting, fighting Brown versus the board and refusing to integrate. We can see it moving through American culture and then it takes over the Republican Party. I must say that you close the article with the following statement. We, could we should remember that when a part of the nation chose to depart from the Constitution and turn instead to force, 
the whole nation suffered grievously. Be especially, be es but especially the part that made the what kind of choice? The lawless choice. Well, you know, I, I define evil. I mean, I, I'm careful about the stuff I'm saying, you know, in terms of working it through. I define evil as a coherent force that consistently works to make the human world worse. Or you could say consistently works to make the world more broken. So what happened in the 1850s is that there was a kind of brokenness which you can sort of see moving in, in the whole system. It's got to do with slavery, but it's also got to do with huge power imbalances in, in the plantation cultures of the South and, and a variety of other things. Uh, that's like, you know, you can, the, the brokenness of the world that, that, that came together and it, it, it consistently works to make the human world worse. Well, boy, what a bonanza the Civil War was for that. I mean, here we are 150 years later and the wounds still have not healed. Talk about a big coup for the force of brokenness. And now we're dealing with the new manifestation of that, which now threatens the very survival of American democracy, as well as exacerbating the tensions between the races, as it always did, as well as uh, widening the gulf between the richest and the rest. Yeah, and all the other things it does, you know, to denying climate change, wherever you look, giving us a Supreme Court that's corrupt and a part and, and a partisan force that only pretends to care about justice, all kinds of ugliness. It's all aligned there. Now, uh, in your second article, what was the Confederacy about? As you know, right now in our current body politic, uh, the the Republican Party, who are who now represent represent for all practical purposes the the, the the aims of the Confederacy, uh, they would want one to believe that this this thing that we are uh, the, the, the 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 accusations that we put on them as far as uh, their racial inclinations, their their socioeconomic inclinations are are false. I think you kind of laid rest to that with this other article where you pointed out, no, you can't argue when even the vice president of this Confederacy stated. Things like we consider, quote unquote, the Negro lesser. So please expand on, on, on what you're trying to well, talk about. Well, back in uh, about 2002, maybe, um, uh, one of the great Civil War uh, scholars of our time wrote a piece in the New York Review of Books where he, 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 um, he lays out how almost immediately after the Civil War, uh, the ruling class of the South um, started putting out false, patent falsehoods about what the, the Civil War had been about. You know, the lost cause, uh, uh, states' rights, I mean, all a bunch of crap. I mean, all you got to do is look at the statements that they made, like like that cornerstone speech uh, by the vice president, uh, Alexander Stevenson, you know, saying that the, the foundation of our new government is that great moral principle that the white man is superior to the black man and the black man should be uh, this enslaved by the white man. I mean, that's basically what he says right out there at the beginning, you know, before the war actually uh, comes to blows. And yet, you know, Generations in the South are, are being fed the big lie that the war wasn't about the enslavement of black people by white people. 
I mean, it was just, but the big lie. So one of the things you see is that between the leadership in this particular political culture and the common people, common white people, there's a relationship of deception, manipulation, and exploitation. The, you know, the, the, here I am in Virginia looking out over the Shenandoah Mountains. Those Virginians that uh, charged up uh, Cemetery Hill and got slain by the thousands uh, at Gettysburg were fighting to defend a soci- uh, an economic and power system that was considerably contrary to their interests. I mean, the Irish coming into the New World back uh, in 1840s and like that during the famine, they chose to go to the North because they were smart enough to know you don't want to be competing against slave labor. All they get paid is like what livestock gets paid, enough to keep them alive and able to work. You don't want to compete against that. So the Irish went to New York and Philadelphia and Boston. They didn't go to Atlanta compete against slaves. Nonetheless, these guys have been manipulated. Uh, I mean, I don't necessarily know exactly how it worked, but I really did study a a fair amount. And it looks to me like that the center of the manipulation was the idea that when anybody criticizes slavery, they are insulting the honor of the South. They were going to harness the the ideals of honor that, I don't know, the Scots-Irish or whoever, you know, came to the new world with this, you know, you don't want to be dishonored. You know, that's important in certain, you know, there, there's a book by Wyatt Brown about the uh, ethic of honor in this in, in American South before the Civil War. So they get manipulated into being willing to fight and die by the hundreds of thousands to defend a system that was contrary to their interests. Now, what do you see when you look at the at, at the Republican Party and its uh, uh, its supporters now? It's the same damn thing. I mean, their big desire to to, to uh, repeal Obamacare, they were only interested in fighting to get more power for themselves, even willing to inflict. Significant injury on millions of their own supporters by eliminating what had finally given them a, a, a modicum of health care security, the kind of health care security that the citizens of every other major Ameri- uh, and you know advanced society have. They don't care. Just like the slaveholders didn't give a damn about the poor whites. There, there, there's a whole literature about how the, uh, the rich in the South have manipulated the poor whites in the South. So you see these patterns moving through history. And I say, there's a way here of seeing something you might want to call a force of evil, which moves through the human world. Go ahead. And I, I think this is a perfect tie-in to the last article, because where you talk about uh, who really benefited from uh, from what the Confederacy did. And it sure as hell wasn't ultimately the average poor white person. Never did, never will, and it continues today. If we take a look at the, the rural areas here in, in Texas or around the country where most white people or a large percentage of white people still live, 
they're the ones losing hospitals because their red Republican government refused to accept the Medicaid expansion to the Affordable Care Act. And we can go policy after policy after policy that hurts right, them so, more than it hurts the blue states. Well, if it doesn't hurt them worse, it, it, I mean, their their position on climate change, just taking that one yes. big issue, you know, the children and grandchildren of red and blue alike are going to suffer the consequences of what the exactly. Republican Party does on that issue. Exactly. Now, the the, the last story that that. that our, our article that I think we we merged together here to make this co cohesive, a better human story, because again, understanding this does create that is the spirit that drove us to civil war is back. And that's a dangerous article because uh, what you're actually saying from that article, or if one takes that article, the next step, you'll say that we are on the edge of going either side and when we talk about civil war, a lot of people say, oh, we're not going to civil war. We're not necessarily talking about where a whole bunch of Republicans pick up arms and a whole bunch of Democrats pick up arms. There are many forms in which civil wars occur that yeah. has nothing to do with two armies going against each other. And, you know, and if we ended up with an authoritarian regime because the way the political battle played out in terms of who controls, say, the Justice Department, before we go, that, there, is though, a, that is a battlefield which can result in a nonviolent transformation of a society because of a coup d'etat. Right. But, Doc, I want I want to take your article in the way you wrote it, because I love the way you wrote it. And the way you okay. wrote it, you actually you act, the, the way you wrote it was like given those similarities during now we're seeing this. And during the Civil War time, we saw this. Given that sort of a map, let's go over those. In both cases, we see an elite insisting on their liberty, by which they mean freedom to dominate. They are always interested in removing any kind of uh, constraints on their actions, whether it be legal constraints or whatever. If they're, you know, if they're the plutocracy, they don't want regulation. They, they don't want to have to reduce their amassing of wealth in order to serve the public good or the common good. You know, that's what regulation is, ideally. Uh, you, you can't leave it to giant corporations to determine what kind of impact they're going to have on the environment, because right. the system is not set up to even enable them to make the responsible decisions in a competitive market. So you need to have a, a governmental regulation that says thou shalt not discharge, you know, whatever this toxins into the river. Otherwise, they'll do that if it's cheaper than doing something responsible. So you need. Absolutely. So so their their liberty that the that the uh, Chamber of Commerce is always trying to get is the freedom to destroy the world around us if that's how they make the most money. And we can't let that. Now, interestingly, the other, the other topic, in both cases, the use of the structures of American democracy was combined with a contempt for the democratic values that inspired our founders. Before, before you address that, I want to ask you to address it in a, in a context that you didn't address it in your document. Um, I, I am very concerned uh, 
even with, let's say, progressives like yourself, uh, for all practical purposes, given the founders a pass. In other words, um, you're correct that the founders did believe in some modicum of democracy, but I don't know how far away they are or they were from some of the anti-democratic behavior, the anti-democratic modal of the Republican Party of today. Please go at it. So what was the the main thing you wanted me to address? In both cases, the use of structures of American democracy was combined with a contempt for the democratic values that inspired the founders. I would have ended that that sentence uh, with the contempt for the democratic values, period. Well, as for the faults of our founders, I I really don't, I don't think that the, that that's, I mean, yeah, we can, we can write books about, you know, white men of property and all that stuff. So, but I think what's important about the founders, if you look at it in the context of history, is the, the, the rather almost superhuman step that they took in a certain direction. Not that they left behind the, the, the corrupt aspects of the, uh, of the world out of which they emerged. No, they didn't. But what was important was that they had words that, uh, that, that developed a, a greater power than they'd ever had, like all men are created equal. And the, the government derives its just powers from the sen- consent of the governed. That's what's important about those guys. But the, so what, what we see f- happening in cultures is always that there's this battle between the forces that make things more broken and the forces that make things more whole. And, you know, Thomas Jefferson with his slaves and his, his all men are created equal. He was obviously uh, contained aspects of both sets of forces. You know, he, 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 he was caught uh, in contradictions that he wasn't able to resolve, that, but he did, is, he did. He did articulate the morally corrupting aspects of being a slaveholder. Right now, and I think it's important for you know for folks like myself and others who live in this society where a lot of the a, a lot of the discretion the indiscretions of the past still holds true. It is important for us to always, in my opinion make note of that and not give the impression, you know, um, uh, the reason why some, uh, th- that football player that knelt uh, during the Star Spangled Banner, the reason why so many people felt comfortable to attack him was because they didn't know our history. They didn't realize that this third verse, I believe, of the Star Spangled Banner was about killing uh, killing black folks. They didn't know those things. So I think it's important for those of us who know that to see it articulated specifically from progressives on this okay, issue. But let, let's move on let, to let, me tie, let me tie that in with, with, with that, that other thing about uh, exploiting, um, being undemocratic. In mm-hmm. the South, uh, after, say, 1830, um, the 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 dominant elite started becoming uh, increasingly um, defensive uh, about the the slave system, um, and uh, they 
they were not believers. They were happy with all the power that the constitutional system put in their hands, which is another thing. And the Constitution made those people the most the dominant factor in America for up until the Civil War. That's that's another question. But they they were uh, those those people did not. They were happy to reap the rewards of our democracy to the extent to which we had one. But they were not willing to abide, even in the 1830s and 40s, by some of the fundamental principles of the democracy, which is they banned anti-slavery literature from the males. Mm -hmm. That is not consistent with the First Amendment. I mean, it is patently unconstitutional, but that's how it was. And likewise, in our times, this re-emergence of that same force with its lust for power, they have shown themselves, well, in, in the last couple of years, willing to back a, a coup d'etat. There, in, in 1916, when a given result makes their guy president, it's a legitimate election. But in 2020, when the other guy wins the election, to hell with that. We're going exactly. to vote against the certification of the, of the legitimate electors because we insist that elections matter only when it gives us power. And we deny the validity of any election in which we're defeated, like Carrie Lake still does. Like your last, uh, the last point of your article, and we're kind of running up on time right now, it says, in both cases, the powerful elite in the grip of the destructive force refused to accept that in a democracy, kind of mimicking what you're talking about, in a in in a democracy, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and sometimes you have to accept being governed by a duly elected president you don't like. Let me let me take a couple of steps into the the biggest level of abstraction within which I think this is properly understood. These political battles represent a battle between two basic approaches to the the terribly important problem of power. In one, the few tyrannize the many. In the other, the few are empowered by the many to serve them. That is the fundamental thing. But even more fundamental than that, when we see these kinds of forces, one of which uh, leads to corruption and exploitation and human suffering, and one of which leads to the possibilities for a decent life lived where problems are dealt with nonviolently and people are not plagued by the wars that stain human history for thousands of years. We actually are looking at one dimension of a clash between two coherent forces one of which makes the human world better, one of which makes the human world worse, and the two of which interact in a way which aligns quite remarkably closely with what has traditionally been understood as the battle between good and evil. You can give it other names, but this there are two coherent forces. They can be seen. One of the manifestations of the, that coherence is the way something like the spirit that drove us to civil war can survive a century and a half, gradually 
keeping itself alive in the interstices of the culture, and then finding a way to converge and take over a major component of the American power system, just like it did in the 1850s and leading to the Civil War. Dr. Andy Schmuckler, thank you so kindly for that. We'll continue with our series. Uh, the next one, folks, going to be good. The right wing was under the impression that uh, Oliver Anthony wrote that song uh, about the, the what the people are going through as if it was going to be the national anthem for the right wing, right? Because, I mean, they just listened to a few words. You know, that part that says welfare and getting fat and, you know, the stereotype on welfare, etc., etc., etc. Well, you know, it turns out that he is likely severely disappointing those on the right because you know it it turns out that he had a few words to say and one of them he said was i wrote that song about those people you know so for them to have to sit there and listen uh, to that cracks me up he also says that song has nothing to do with joe biden you know it's a lot bigger than joe biden that song was written about the people on that stage meaning the republican party stage and a lot more too not just them but definitely them he said though it remains to be seen if republican politicians will get the message the song does not does have one fan on the other side of the aisle democratic candidate robert f kennedy but i mean here's the deal the whole deal about the song is that when i listened to the song the first time and i saw the words it's like well you know what if he's singing that as a ode to the right but looking at their policies and what he's complaining about, the guy better be a pro he should be a progressive. He's just voting wrong. And in effect, if you listen to the words that he said, he doesn't want to get political. And in fact, he said, I'm right down the middle. Really, anytime you hear somebody say they're down the middle, they're really le left, really not wanting to say what they really stand for. But listen, look at his history, look at his background, look at the difficulties he's had in life. You know, a 30-year-old with these kinds of difficulties? I want you to listen to the follow-up that he has, and then we'll finish on the other side. I never used to wake up feeling this way. Just know I didn't used to wake up feeling this way. Cussing myself every damn day. Cussing myself every damn day. Always some kind of bill to pay. Always some kind of bill to pay. People just... Doing what the rich man says. People just doing what the rich man says. And that is the sentiment of probably 75% of Americans. Just what he said there. The problem is they just don't know what to do. They just figure that these rich guys, they're going to get what they want every time they want whatever they want. So to Mr. Anthony, uh, Oliver Anthony, let me tell you something, brother. Uh, look, you in your little, your, your voice represent quite a bit of what folks are saying. If we could get all the people who know what the problems are to really start looking at who has the solution, then things will be okay. So maybe as opposed to being a political, just like you kind of meandered in politics a bit, in this interview, brother, go ahead and get real political and say who is really, where the genesis of the problem is, who are really causal. 
Just saying rich people is not enough. We need to actually go to the causal nature of policy. Chuck Todd today exposed Vivek Ramaswamy as the fraud that he is using his own book. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. In your book, which wasn't written that long ago, um, you wrote the fact that all of our governmental institutions so unanimously found no evidence of significant fraud is telling. Furthermore, I've talked to many Republicans at all levels of government, and not one has ever presented convincing evidence that the 2020 election was stolen from President Trump. Very few have seriously tried. I don't believe that most Republican politicians actually think the election was stolen. So you went from there, so let me address and this. 11 months later, your views have changed on January 6th. Again, this book was written September yeah, of 2022. Chuck, I'm happy to address that if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah, so in reading exactly that chapter in the book, I drew a sharp distinction between what I did see as the interference in the election that mattered, which was interference by big tech. I'm data driven. There's hard data showing that many voters, many independent voters would have changed their result enough to influence the outcome of the election yeah. if they had been exposed to what we now know to be the truth about the Hunter Biden laptop story. By contrast, I've also been clear. I have not yet seen evidence that there was ballot fraud of a scale that would have changed that result. I'm just responding to data on both fronts. First of all, you never talked about the tech stuff in your book. This is a new thing. It Actually, is that's not false, Chuck. It, it's it, you have not Chuck, talked about this hundred five nation of victims aspect aspect of it. We were looking, Chuck. For I, it. I think you have not. I think you have not read nation. I think you have not read nation of victims. Literally read the book. There is about twenty pages of content devoted yeah, to this. And I also bring it up. You didn't write about Wilkins. election so, fraud that it, way. It, and let me quote it again. We use. You're referring to Republicans. We use stolen election theories as a backdoor to embracing our own victim identity uh, path, pursuing an easy path to power. Throughout this entire book, you mock the entire January 6th aspect. You you absolutely criticize Donald Trump for being a sore loser. You write about it in a way of making your point that you've be, we've become a nation of victims. And right now on TV, you're doing the exact opposite. I'm not. Chuck, I actually want to be very clear. I preach to conservative audiences, we're not going to be victims, we're going to be victorious. Whether I'm talking to the left or the right, I say the same thing. Again, from your book, no one likes a sore loser. That's one of the worst victim hard complexes of all. Are you referring to Donald Trump? I referred in that chapter both to Stacey Abrams and to Donald Trump. And I think that the answer is we need leaders who ultimately stand for victory over victimhood. But again, let me, let me go back to quoting you. The Republican Party seems to be moving towards the position that any races it wins are legitimate and any it loses were stolen. It's just the preferred, preferred conservative brand of victimhood, a knee-jerk kind of sore losing more common to playground than great republics. You seem to, at the time you wrote your book, believe this was potentially damaging to the rule of law. This was not a way to have a democracy thrive. And you're now speaking in a way that gives essentially a permission slip to election deniers to believe there's some truth to something that you yourself have yet to find evidence of. Chuck, I stand by everything I said. That was a book where 11 of the 12 chapters were dedicated to a lot of left-wing victimhood in this country, but it would have been incomplete for me to, not to call out my own tribe. Chuck, this isn't some game of gotcha. I stand by everything I've written over the last three All years right. in the books that I have, except for a few areas on facts where, as the new facts have come up, I've changed my mind. But in the core theses, I'm in the exact place I am as when I wrote those books. So it turns out 
Vivek doesn't believe that there was even uh, that that Trump won the election. Vivek doesn't believe that there was any kind of fraud. He said he spoke to a lot of Republicans that said otherwise. Yet he goes on stage and makes it believe that he is in line with with brother Trump. He is in line with the victimhood that uh, uh, that Donald Trump tries to make himself to be. Well, as it turns out. Uh, Vivek turned around on a whole lot of things as he decided to run for president. Again, we ought to realize, though, he's nothing more than a a uh, minor, pompous uh, Donald Trump sycophant who would say anything like Donald Trump would say anything. He's a charlatan, just like Donald Trump is one. Again, they are the same. Wonder why he's running. Former governor of North Carolina, Pat McCurry, appeared on Meet the Press today. He tried to make it seem as if America is clamoring for the no-labels uh, third-party run against Biden and Trump, right? But again, uh, Daily Kosis founder, Marcus Molitsas, appeared on it to bust his bubble. Check out what Marcus did to him, and then we'll take it on the other side. Pat, you are a big part of no-labels. You guys are recruiting candidates. What is this ticket going to look like? And, and is this a 100% commitment that there's going to be a, a ticket from no labels? Well, Nikki Haley in the debate confirmed that 65% of the people are disgusted with both Trump and Biden being our only choices. They're asking, isn't America better than this? Can't we have a better choice? And the momentum, the movement of no labels is uh, on fire right now. People are looking for another. I, I get that people candidate. don't want. And I know, I know. I wait a minute. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of people. No, they're not. There are a lot of people. I'm telling you right now. There are a lot of people who predicted Trump would never be president. Are the same people who are saying there's no way in hell a third party mm -hmm. can win. I'm telling you, we've never had 65 percent of the people disgusted. So no with label both is literally a movement that says we stand for nothing. Imagine going that to Walmart so or Target and oh. seeing no labels. You on haven't products. read obviously products the 30 issue statements. No, here no labels. The issue statement ignores abortion, and it has such what, barn, you, you missed a whole barn burning issues such as you medical tort it. reform. That'll light up the audience. You have not read so it. So the the reality is it's, it's, it's finance <laughs> industry heavy. Oh, I read it. No, I actually did read it. Read it. I read it last night. So I, that's why I couldn't sleep. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, Nikki so, Haley basically repeated the, the no labels. No, agenda. no, no, no. So, so right. the, the problem isn't, isn't, oh, they don't like, you know, um, Biden or Trump is that you are creating this idea that there's a mythical unicorn creature that will agree with these people who want something else. Yeah. That doesn't exist. When Magellan pulled, uh, Mansion and Huntsman, mm -hmm. Like it was like what twelve percent, fifteen percent, and then would even get that much. I don't. Marco, are you comfortable? Are you comfortable that there that there isn't a Democratic primary? Would you like to see Biden have to come up with a better case? Biden is actually very popular amongst Democrats in civics polling. Civics with a Q. Biden is sitting around eighty percent with Democrats. There's no space. You think there's no space for an anti-Trump? There's really is no space for an anti-Biden. And there's a. I mean, just you talk about you know popularity. You see right now, you see Republicans going to groundbreaking ceremonies yeah. for Build Back Better and for uh, Inflation Reduction Act uh, I, I because have, taking credit for 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 projects that they voted against. I actually I, would say that I can you give options. us some names because, there's, I, you know, Manchin and Huntsman ain't going to that's not going to get you your unicorn. 
You, are there, what other candidates? I'm just saying, I don't think there's going to be a shortage. Will Hurd one of your candidates? I don't think there will be a shortage of candidates. Why can't you guys name some names? Because we want to go through a good process. We're going to have a convention in April, and we're going to be very transparent with American people, as we were with the 30 issues, the common sense issues. So that who we funds presented. your movement? Are we going to talk about transparency? What's that? Who's the funding? The, the same people uh, who have groups that are funded with MoveOn.org right. that are trying to stop us from getting on the ballot. So again, uh, it is amazing that this guy comes onto TV, McCory that is, to claim that there is a clamoring for no labels. Yes, it is true that America would like to see something other than a, a meeting between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. But it's because of the way things work, it's not going to be there. But the clamoring for a third party to make things up, you know what? Marcus got him really good. Who's funding you? And not only that, what do you represent? You really give your name a good word. No labels. Exactly. No labels. You stand for nothing on all the issues that America say they want, which in general at a much higher than 60% are progressive, you have no stance. It is clear that no labels is, in, is coming into the fold, not to do something for America, but to ensure that a, an America that is moving towards uh, a, a, a po policies that support people is slowed down. And why? That's why we have the corporate fantasy of a no-labels movement that America is clamoring for. They are clamoring for no corporatist movement like no-labels. America wants policies that support American people, the average American person, the working class. And right now, that is only coming from the progressive aisle of the political spectrum in America, and that is represented by the Democratic Party. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. We're honored today to have Kristen Browdy. She's a parent, an attorney at Browdy Law, a past chair of the National Trans Bar Association, a trustee of the $2.5 billion AFTRA retirement system, and a proud member of the woke mob. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Kristen Browdy, how are you doing today? Good, how are you? Great. Let me tell you how I came upon you. I, I am one of those people who believe in getting information from the masses. That is how we really know how society is doing. So unlike most who want to ban Twitter and ban, uh, ban Facebook and TikTok, all of that, I think what we need to do is learn how to use these as tools and not make them scapegoats for the ills of society. Now, I came across... I guess maybe we think the same because somehow you appeared in my feed and you did a piece. I think it was week 16 of a series that you started that I never heard of that when I saw it made a hell of an impression on me. So I found a way to find you and ask you and you so kindly accepted to be on Politics Done Right. Why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself first and then we'll go into the videos that I'm talking about. Well, um, I'm an, a lawyer, a parent. I have two kids. Uh, they're 19 and 23. Um, and I'm obviously an out transgender woman uh, who lives in Miami, Florida now, uh, in the land that we call DeS DeSantistan. Um, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to be transgender in America. 
where I came from, New York, we had achieved great things. Uh, equality may not be the reality for people, but it's absolutely the law for everyone. Down here, they've moved in exactly the opposite direction. And for what reason? Well, you hear all the scare tactics. You hear the fear that's being peddled from the extreme right, frankly. And I thought, okay, how do we deal with this? Um, facts matter. I know that that's gone out of fashion since 2016, but facts do matter. And all the propaganda has been transgender people, drag queens, they're grooming children, they're hurting children. So I thought, let's look at who actually is hurting children. Kristen, I, I want to pause us here. I want to play that video that actually impressed me and I think will impress most. Check this out. We'll take it on the other side. The numbers are as ugly as they are consistent. Yes, this is week 16 of who's making news for sex crimes involving children. We have 52 new cases and 11 of them, more than 20% involve pastors, priests, and other church officials. Specifically, five new pastors or youth pastors, four Catholic priests, a senior Baptist church official, and a Catholic school teacher, all making news this week for sex crimes involving children. Add to that five police officers, five school teachers or other school officials, six family friends or neighbors, and two family members, and those are our biggest groupings of people involved in reports of sex crimes involving children this week. But we cannot forget one more politician, the 12th in 16 weeks, and yes, another Republican. Ten of the 12 politicians in our reports of sex crimes involving children have been Republicans. Who has not been in our reports? That would be drag queens. In 566 cases over 16 weeks, not a single drag queen. 22% have been church employees, 14% of them pastors, the ones screeching loudest about the drag queens and transgender people. They're the most consistent offenders here, the pastors. Trans folk, again, none this week, and they've represented just three-tenths of 1% of the reports for the 566 cases. There have been two of them. For those who've asked, with the help of a terrific TikTok viewer, we're putting together a web page showing all the links, all the names, and a pie chart. That's in testing right now. We hope to have it up within a week or two. Okay, Kristen, um, that video blew my mind, but it's not that I didn't know that, but putting it in the manner in which you put it to show that we are barking up the wrong tree and that most of the people that are really a harm to children aren't the, it's almost like these guys are projecting. Tell us a little bit about why you made that video, et cetera. Well, it started back in February when one of the people who I know down here in Florida politics said to me, have you seen the statistics? And it was for one week and there had been 17 arrests for crimes involving sex crimes against children. And of them, 14 were pastors. 14. And one was a pastor's wife. Um, I, I was frankly blown away by it. We've all heard of the Catholic Church scandals, the Mormon Church scandals, the Southern Baptist scandals. But those were historical scandals. And this was one week in February of this year. And I thought, okay, 
TikTok is, if anything, a great organizing tool. So I put together a short little TikTok about that. And I was stunned that within a couple of days, it had a million and a half views. That's the difference between Facebook and TikTok. TikTok actually reaches people. Um, Facebook used to. TikTok does. Um, so I got lots of requests. You got to do this every week. You got to do this every week. So I did the next week and it was quickly over 2 million views. I'm like, okay, there's an interest in this subject. There's a thirst for this knowledge. Caveat. TikTok's algorithm takes you to people who are interested in the subject and tend to be on your side. The question was, how do you reach those who really need to hear this? Those who might be on the fence a little bit and hearing from politicians who, for whatever reason they trust, that transgender people and drag queens are the problem when they're not. So I continued it. And I thought, let's do a full year. Let's see what a year looks like. One report each week. And as we got on into it, people expressed more and more interest in the granular details. So we started tracking it more carefully, starting to make a record of the names and the towns and the states in which this was happening. And now 16 weeks in, we're building a robust database of who the offenders are. And what we've found is that overwhelmingly, far out of disproportion, far, far disproportionately to their numbers in society, it's people who claim church affiliation as their employment. More than 20% of the offenders in the past 16 weeks that we have tracked have been pastors, youth pastors, priests, Mormon bishops, missionaries, religiously affiliated people, and people employed by churches. 20%. Well, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says there are 60,000 employed pastors in the United States. If you throw in the volunteers, because not all of them are paid employment, right. you get up to around 600,000. If you look at the number of transgender people in America, the estimates are anywhere from a half of 1% to 2% of the population. Let's use the lower bond, lower bound. Uh, one half percent, that would be over one and a half million. So of the one and a half million in 16 weeks, we found two accused offenders, no drag queens, as opposed to less than half that, really 40% of that number, the religious employed, producing 20%. So where's the problem? Where's the, the answer is really clear. If you look at the statistics, not transgender people. It's not drag queens. There hasn't been a single one of them. But 20% employed by churches. There you are. You know, that is that is so amazing. And it, it that is important work that needs to be highlighted. Because the reality is if you really care about children, if you are concerned about who is actually hurting children. The church more so than trans and having two trans. I, I wonder if you figured out if the two trans were pastors. 
They were not. But um, we've tracked those cases pretty carefully. And it looks like one of them, uh, a transgender man, probably, you know, from, from what little you see, is probably guilty. The other one is a daycare worker in Paducah, Kentucky, a trans woman who was accused of inappropriately change, uh, touching a child, inappropriately touching a child while changing its diaper. Well, I'm a parent. It's really hard to change a diaper of an infant without touching them in a way that could be considered. It's not to say you couldn't touch them inappropriately. Right, right. But, but we're going to have to see about that one. That one's more of an on-the-fence case. But either way, we reported it. We're not, we're not cherry-picking. We're not leaving anybody out. You've got those two out of the 566. And let's be clear here. This is nationwide. You didn't concentrate on Florida or New York or North Carolina or Texas. You you took up all the the all the people that were convicted or or, or accused nationally, and Correct. created the database of the, of all of all of the child molesters throughout the country. Now here's the limitation. There are limitations in the data. Number one, we know that all we see is those that make the news, news reports. We obviously don't see ones that are not reported by local news and the news media, unfortunately, at the local level has been decimated by budget cuts. So it's possible that some cases are not getting to us. Number two, we're limited by Google search algorithms and they're not always right on time. A small local paper in some small town in Iowa might not get picked up for a week or two. But you know, you know, one other thing, Kristen, is you also know that the in especially in these small towns, etc., it will be biased against uh, you know, if you're seeing 20% evangelicals, uh, you know that it's likely higher because there's a lot in many areas, there are a lot of hiding when the church is involved in doing certain things, when police officers are involved in doing certain things, and when all these people of power are involved in doing. So you know that your data is probably biased against, let's say, certain populations and, and, and favorable to others. Absolutely. It is an article of faith around here that if a, there were even the slightest hint of, dran, of transgender involvement, or drag queen involvement, it would be the lead of the story. Fox exactly. would never stop yapping about it. Um, we'd know about that case instantly. But if it's a church member, if it's a police officer, sometimes those don't get, you know, they get swept under the rug. That's why you have scandals like the Catholic Church, where you only years later are you hearing in various archdioceses across the country and around the world that hundreds of holy priests have been involved in thousands of incidents with no criminal charges? Well, let me tell you, uh, uh, first of all, thank you for that work that you're doing. We, we can never be more enlightened uh, than being enlightened. So um, it's, it's important what you're doing. Go ahead and give me a closer here. What would you like to tell these audiences uh, going forward? Two things. Number one, we are building a website so people can go through the data themselves. That should be up in a week or two uh, at whoismakingnews.com. We've reserved the name. The site isn't active yet. It will be in a week or two. It's still being built. Number two, when you hear politicians yelling about 
the danger of transgender people in bathrooms, in locker rooms, in proximity to children. The reality is that transgender people, if you, if you look at the number of transgender people who have committed crimes involving peeping, touching, anything in locker rooms or bathrooms in the past 50 years, remember, 1.5 million lower bound of transgender people in America. Do you know how many cases there are? Three. Three in 50 years. If you look at United States Congress people, there are 535 of them at any, at any time. In the past 50 years, how many of them have had that problem? Over 11. So do you want 11 out of 535 or do you want three out of 1.5 million? Pick your odds. Who are you actually worried about? And if it's us, I think you're missing something. Well, let, let me tell you why I take, I, I, I know I said that's a closer, but I, I, you, you brought something up. Uh, too often in our society, and me being a, a BIPOC, realizing how stats are skewed and made to hurt people. You know, I don't, I don't, uh, the racist, the homophobe, the, the, the anti-trans and all these people, the average pop person in their population, I really don't blame them or hold them too accountable. I hold those accountable who are putting out that data yes. that allows these people to be ill-informed, to be misinformed. And in the work that I do, I try to be, I try to be reach, uh, I try to reach, I try to go to the level of the racist. I try to go to the level of the homophobe. I try to go to the level of all these others understanding that it's not them, but those who are promoting the false information. And I think both you and I and others that are in this work, that is what we have to concentrate on, not the hate on those who hate us, but go. the hate on those who create those who hate us. Exactly right. Exactly. Couldn't have said it better. That's, that's exactly right. That's why I like Pacifica, because you won't hear that anywhere else. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Kristen Browdy, a parent, attorney at Browdy Law, and somebody we must all follow.